Hey class, so this is podcast number five and this comes after the podcast where we learned about uh, measuring the performance of different machine learning models, right? So you measure the performance of different machine learning models and in some cases you might want to improve the performance of the machine learning models. And then once you have measured the performance of the machine learning models, what you want to do is you want to select the best model. So today's topic is model selection. Uh, what are the ways in which you select the best models, right? After you measure the performance. So one thing that comes in between measuring the performance of the model and selecting the best model might be, how do you improve the performance of the model, right? So now you've measured the performance of the model, whether it is the classification uh, algorithm or the regression algorithm. We talked about uh, different metrics that are used as performance measures for classification and different metrics that are used as performance measures for regression, right? For regression, we have MSE or the mean squared error. For classification, we have performance measures such as accuracy, precision, recall, and the F-beta score, right? Um, so in order to improve the performance, you might want to modify the hyperparameters. So in the past, we had talked about this, that hyperparameters are essentially the parameters that the human or the programmer is tweaking as opposed to the parameters that the algorithm is learning by itself, right? So remember the theta parameters, right? Uh, in the regression model, the theta one and theta two, uh, which are essentially the bias and the weight. Um, so these parameters were being learned by the model, but there are parameters that the human has to tweak, right? So for example, in the case of regression, the regularization term, right? Um, and in the case of deep learning, we had a little bit of a primer to deep learning, and we'll talk a lot more about deep learning in the sequel to this class. But if you remember, in deep learning, you had the width of the uh, model and you had the depth of the model. So the width of the model, that is how wide the model is, depends on how many neurons are there per layer, right? So in every hidden layer, how many neurons are there? right? That's the uh, width of the model. And the depth of the model is how many layers are there in the network. So these are examples of hyperparameters that the human being would tweak in the case of a deep neural network. Well, we also talked about this, that, you know, it is essentially kind of helpful if the human being does not have to tweak so many hyperparameters. So there are tools uh, such as AutoML, and this comes within the domain of meta-learning, where the algorithm itself learns to tune its hyperparameters, right? So regardless, in order to improve the performance of the model, you may modify the hyperparameters. You can also do things that are related to the data, right? So how many training examples do you need? Can you collect more data? Can you fill in the missing data? Or can you normalize fields? Now something um, to say in terms of normalizations, so if you consider, for example, the Portland data set, uh, Portland housing market data set, right? So if you consider the number of bedrooms, say, right? Versus if you consider the distance of the house from the school, right? So if it's in a school district, how far is the house from the school? Or how far is the house from downtown? Right. Uh, so if you consider the distance metric versus uh, the categorical um, feature where you have the number of bedrooms or the number of bathrooms, they're very different kinds of features. Right. Um, so in order for the machine learning algorithm to be able to imbibe the data, you might have to do things such as for categorical data. We have talked about this in the past. You might have to convert categorical data into numerical data. 
by something called one hot encoding, right? So you might have to do things to the data, massage the data so that the machine learning algorithm can better make sense of the data, right? Especially when you have different features that have different scales, you might have to normalize the fields, right? So all of this is related to the data. And the third one is very important where you might have to add a regularization term. Now, since we will not get time to get into deep learning uh, in this um, uh, machine learning introductory class, uh, we have talked a little bit about it, but one of the things that is used for regularizing a deep learning model is called dropout, D-R-O-P-O-U-T. So dropout is used for regularizing a machine learning model, right? And we also briefly talked about uh, things like lasso and ridge regression and elastic net for regression where you're using these regularization terms in order to prevent overfitting and underfitting. So it's finding the happy balance between overfitting and underfitting in the sense that it's helping the model get the right amount of fit. So right sizing the fit of the model, neither too high of a variance nor too high of a bias. So the bias variance trade-off or the underfitting versus overfitting trade-off. Right? So these are ways in which you can improve the performance of the model. We talked about modifying the hyperparameters, um, then things related to the data. Do you collect more data? Do you normalize the fields? Do you fill in missing data? Right? Uh, filling in missing data, there is a lot of work in that area. And then regularizing the model by adding the regularization terms uh, to the overall equation. Right? So you add this chunk, which results in neither overfitting nor underfitting for the model. And it gives it the right balance between variance and bias. Right? So now you've done all of this. And in spite of that, you, know, you will have differences in the different models. Right? Now, how do you select the best model? Now, there are some uh, criteria uh, that come from information theory that you can use to select the best model. And I'm going to give you a very brief synopsis of the intuition of these criteria. Now, some common criteria. So on the one hand, you have something called AIC or GAIC. AIC stands for Akaike Information Criterion. GAIC is Generalized Akaike Information Criterion. Akaike is AK. A-I-K-E, right? And the purpose of uh, AIC or GAIC is you're picking the best model for a given training data set. So once you have a given training data set, you want to pick the best model, right? And the other one, which falls in a slightly different class, is uh, the BIC or the Bayesian Information Criterion. And we haven't covered too much of Bayesian um, in this class, but I'll give a little bit of a snippet teaser in this podcast. Uh, but essentially, that falls in a slightly different genre of, for model selection. Right. Uh, the other thing, just uh, so that, you know, when you're reading papers, uh, you can recognize this. Uh, GAIC is also known as the Takeuchi Information Criterion or TIC. Right. It's spelled T-A-K-E-U-C-H-I. Right. T-A-K-E-U-C-H-I. So these are obviously after the people who came up with these different information criterion. Uh, right? Now, uh, rather criteria. So what you're essentially doing is uh, for giving you the intuition of the Kaike information criterion is that when you have two models that have good performance using the same training data set, 
you are picking the model with fewer parameters. So this is something that uh, is called parsimony, right? So you're picking the more parsimonious model. That is the model that has fewer parameters, right? So if you have two models with uh, good performance using a training data set, you need to pick the model with the fewer set of parameters is what the intuition for AIC or GAIC, which is also known as TIC is. So we will not cover uh, BIC in this uh, short podcast, but just to give you an idea of, you know, uh, memorization error and generalization error, we have talked about this in the past. Uh, but essentially what you're doing is when you're fitting a model's parameters uh, to a data set, right, uh, you want to measure one is the training error, which is also known as the in-sample prediction error. Right. But the other thing you want to measure is the test error or out of sample prediction error. And we have talked about this, that one of the things is you don't just want to optimize the training error, because if you do that, what happens is the model starts overfitting. So when you're measuring the performance of the model, what you're essentially doing is you're optimizing the out of sample prediction error or the test error. Right. Because you want to prevent memorization. Right. So you want to improve the generalization performance of the model rather than the memorization performance of the model. Right. So the training error does not evaluate generalization performance when you're doing the in sample prediction error. Right. Whereas if you want to generalize uh, the performance, you measure the out of sample prediction error or the test error. Right. And so there are several ways of doing this. Uh, and one is the train test method. So very briefly, I'm going to cover those uh, now. One is the train test method where you divide your data set into a training data set and a testing data set. Right. And typically the training data set is the larger chunk of the data. So say 80, 20, depending on, you know, um, several factors. Right. And we talked about this um, uh, in one of the earlier episodes, the sample complexity, how much training data is needed in order for the model to perform well. Right. So the train test method, essentially you divide your data set into the training data set and the testing data set, and then you measure the performance of the model on the testing data set. And this measurement of the performance of the model on the testing data set gives you the out of sample prediction error or the test error. Now, one of the things that happens is if you do this, the train test method, you typically uh, may suffer from something called, you know, like, or rather to give you the intuition, when you are training your model versus when you're testing your model, there might be different patterns or different idiosyncrasies in the train or the test data set. And essentially your model may be picking up um, stuff in the training data set that is not relevant to the test data set or vice versa. So in order to, um, you know, overcome this problem with the train test method, uh, something called cross validation is used, right? And again, um, we will not go into too much uh, details of the cross-validation 
methods in this podcast. But just to give you an example of how it will work is um, essentially it is a method for assessing generalization performance rather than memorization performance, right? At a high level, cross-validation is used to measure the generalization performance rather than the memorization performance. And there are various ways of doing the cross-validation. Uh, so one uh, way, which is uh, essentially what you do, is you do two-fold cross-validation. So you divide your data set into two parts and you have train and test. And then uh, you have uh, it reversed and you re take the test set, now becomes the train set and the train set now becomes test set. And then you average the value. Right? So that is two-fold cross-validation. Now what happens with two-fold cross-validation is that you're ultimately what you're doing is you're getting uh, fewer training uh, stimuli than the original full data set in two-fold cross-validation. So essentially what you want to do is you want to expose your model to maximum training examples. But with two-fold cross-validation, if you're dividing it into a train and a test set, you're essentially halving the number of training examples that the model sees, right? So something that is done instead is if you could fit the model to n minus one training stimuli, and test the model on the remaining tra training stimulus to get an out of sample prediction error, then we would repeat this process using a different subset of the n minus one training stimuli to get another out of sample prediction error, right? And we would proceed uh, so on and so forth. So what happens is you get now n different training data sets, but what happens here is you're increasing the time taken for this cross-validation, right? So there is, on the one hand, you want to get uh, maximum exposure of the model to the training examples, but sometimes this may come at the cost of time taken by the algorithm. So these n minus one training stimuli versus um, the test stimuli, this method uh, is resulting in quite a high time spent in this cross-validation technique. So that is where you have these um, EIC, uh, GIC, and BIC criteria come in these decrease the time that is required for model selection as opposed to the cross-validation method, right? So just to recap, I said I'm going to keep this brief and just give you a flavor of model selection. So just to recap, we talked about the train test method, right? The train test method, the main um, caveat there is that there might be idiosyncrasies in the training data set or in the test data set, and so you're missing out on the training data set specific um, idiosyncrasies or the testing data set specific idiosyncrasies. Now the idiosyncrasies in the training data set, if they're not present in the testing data set are not really relevant. And your model is learning those patterns which are not really relevant to the real world. right? Whereas if the model has not been exposed to the patterns that are there in the real world and you know, so the model may not perform as well on the real world data sets, right? And that is where uh, we had talked about that, you know, like the distribution of the data for the training and the test set should be similar. So the model has a, a better idea of what to expect when thrown out into the wild, right? So this is called the train test method. But the very important thing there is that the distribution has to be very similar. Otherwise, the model is going to have a hard time and it's going to give you a bad generalization performance.
right? So it might memorize uh, things that may or may not be relevant to the big wide world uh, that are present in the training data set. So this is the train test method. The other method is the cross-validation method and there are various variants of the cross-validation method. Right? So if you take the n minus one method, what happens there is that the computational time needed for cross-validation will increase a lot because what you're essentially doing, you're dividing the training data set um, into n different parts and you fit the model to n minus one training stimuli and test the model on the remaining training stimulus to get an out of sample prediction error for the remaining training stimulus, and then you repeat the process using different subsets of the n-1 training stimuli, right? And every time you get a different out-of-sample prediction error estimator, right? So as you keep proceeding with this, you have um, essentially uh, done something called leave one out cross-validation. Right? So what it does is not only does it give you an average n minus one estimators rather than just two estimators, but each training data sample has n minus one training stimuli. So you would have essentially gotten all the important statistical uh, regularities or irregularities that are present in the n training data sets. So the problem with this method, I said, is it's computationally intensive. So that is where you uh, use these uh, criteria such as EIC, GIC, or BIC, because what that does is it gives you which model to select without the computational complexity of the leave one out cross-validation method. Because the leave one out cross-validation method is a better method than the twofold cross-validation. Right? And leave one out cross-validation is sometimes called L-O-O-C-V. You will see L-O-O-C-V being mentioned um, in many papers, and that is the leave one out cross-validation method. Now, the uh, information criteria come in handy when you don't have a whole lot of data. So you'll see in the deep learning world, for example, mostly what you do is cross-validation. So in our papers, uh, the ones that I asked you to read, for example, on the microRNA target uh, selection where you have the classification problem, you'll see uh, for our work, we did a tenfold cross-validation in one case and a five-fold cross-validation in another case, right? So one of the things to keep in mind is how much you're exposing your model to the different uh, regularities or irregularities of the training and test data set but also how long it is taking to accomplish the goal, right? So the computational uh, complexity is something to keep in mind, right? What's the computing time that results from uh, doing the cross-validation uh, in the extreme case, uh, leave one out cross-validation, right? And that's where these uh, information criteria come in handy. And I told you the basic intuition for these information criteria is that you're trying to reduce the number of model parameters for the same training data set. So you're getting the out of sample generalization error without having to refit the model multiple times with different subsets of the training data set and then having to average the performance. Right? So it's a computationally not expensive. And one of the things to keep in mind is although the AIC or the GAIC, and you, um, if you read, you'll see the BIC, that's Bayesian Information Criterion. One of the things is that although they are very easy to compute, there are some 
assumptions that are made in order for these to hold well. And a lot of the times it's easy to miss out on the assumptions that need to be true or need to hold in order for these criteria to work well, right? So although computing these criteria is very simple, there are assumptions that need to be kept in mind. And I'm not going to go through all the details in this podcast, but one of the things to keep in mind is when you're following uh, the AIC or BIC techniques, you have to make sure that you're following the assumptions in order to get actually get the correct model, right? And again, uh, both of these techniques, whether the AIC or BIC, they favor parsimonious models. Right? That is, you want lower number of model parameters for the same model performance. And it is known that the BIC model is more conservative in the sense that it tries to decrease the model parameters even more as compared to the AIC model. So there are subtle differences in terms of the kind of uh, performance um, benefits you get from the AIC and BIC, but intrinsically, they're also quite a bit different. So I'm not going to go into that detail in this podcast, but I just wanted you to know that there are ways in which you can select models. And essentially, we talked about three different ways. One is the train test method. Another is the cross-validation method. Another is using these BIC or AIC information criteria.